The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. But if you see somebody with a Mets hat on, there's no denying that they know exactly what the Mets are, what they've been about. You know, this isn't the, oh, I picked this up because I thought it was a New York hat. This is I picked it up because I, I'm a Mets fan and I want to wear it. So to some extent, you know, what that individual told me had some basis to it. He is the rare New York athlete that has played for both city teams. And even rarer, he's a guy that both fan bases have nothing bad to say about. Curtis Granderson came to the Yankees in 2010 as the team attempted to defend that last World Series title. Then after four seasons in the Bronx, he signed a free agent deal with the Mets. The one rare moment of criticism he got was in that opening press conference in Queens when he repeated something that somebody told him, that true New Yorkers were Mets fans. We'll get into that and his World Series run in Queens in 2015 and how he wants to help families who may not be able to afford keeping their kids in baseball to be able to make ends meet. And most of all, how a guy could avoid the natural pit of frustration that playing in New York for both teams can be. Double your fun. And that's because Granderson is thoughtful and authentic and always treated everybody with respect. And that always seemed to leap out from the TV. The Grandy Man can and did. This is Curtis Granderson's New York accent. Curtis, how you doing? I am doing great, and thank you for having me on. Excited to do. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great. I am doing great, and uh, it's a thrill to have you on because you span two different teams, franchises in the city. You can speak to both, but also, I just find you to be one of the most likable and popular players that have played in this city in in, in a long time. And I think both the Yankee fans and Mets fans have a soft spot for you. And a lot of people around baseball, they find you to be kind and thoughtful and and generous. And I wonder where that comes from. Where, where did the original DNA of, of Curtis Granderson being a patient, thoughtful guy come from? That's mom and dad. And I think the fact that they were both teachers says a lot for just their patience and obviously having to raise me, then dealing with their number of students throughout the course of the day just kind of ended up being hand in hand. So the way they they raised me and taught me, I just went about kind of the same way and just made sure everybody was treated the same. There was no reason to treat anybody better or worse just because they may look different. They might be different. They might talk different. But again, I think that all stems from their teaching background because you have a classroom with a number of students that are all different and you have to go ahead and try to find the best way to connect with all of them so they can understand what's going on so they can succeed and pass and move on to the next level. So seeing that, witnessing that, being around that, I think helped shape and mold me to the individual that I became. When you have two parents who are teachers in education, was there pressure on not going too far into sports and doing something else as a career? Or were they pretty supportive of you going down the athletic route? What's interesting is my mom always says that she goes, I never raised a, our goal was not to raise a professional baseball player. Our goal was to raise a, a bright young man that can go ahead and take care of himself. If the opportunity presented itself where athletics would be able to give you the ability to be able to provide for yourself, provide for your family and do so, then we go ahead and consider that. But education is still always going to be the most important thing. They knew that, I knew that, and the Detroit Tigers found that out when they drafted me and they asked me, hey, once we draft you here in June, although you're a junior, we know you still have school left, 
What does that look like for you to go to fall instructional league, which is a very popular thing they do for players that get drafted? I said, hey, I have everything set for me to go back to school for my senior year. Can I postpone going to instructional league my first year and go my second year? So I was upfront and honest with them. They agreed they were good with that. So I was able to finish and graduate with my class at UIC on time and still continue to play my professional baseball career. It's amazing that you had that type of support in your family. And then also, as you said, were able to have the flexibility to do sports or not. You grew up southern suburbs of Chicago, but you were not a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan growing up. Why not? Not at all. You know what? I, I enjoyed being around him. And anytime the team was around, of course, we would get a chance to watch him. But I was a Braves fan. And the Braves in the 90s, I mean, it was hard not to like them and not watch them because, one, they were on everywhere. Whether I was home in Chicago, whether I was visiting family in Mississippi or traveling anywhere in between, TBS and the Superstation, they were on. And they were on at the right time, in my opinion, as a kid at that time, because I was a huge Saved by the Bell fan. So when I would come home from school and not have any homework for the day, Saved by the Bell would be on. Zach Morris, Lisa Turtle, A.C. Slater, Screech, Jesse Capone, you know, all of them, right? But then here are the Cubs playing a day game, ruining my show. And, and, and the, the issue isn't the fact that it was the Cubs playing. It was at the time because, you know, they played a one o'clock game. We don't get home from school until 2.30 or 3. So it's the fifth or the sixth inning. I don't want to see it at that point in time, especially if the game was out of hand. And once the game finally finishes, well, they're not going to go back and play the show I want to see. we got to move on to the rest of the scheduled program. So from that point, I was like, that's it. Let me go ahead and watch the Braves. They come on at nighttime. And I got nothing else really that I'm competing with and my homework is done and I can go ahead and watch them then. I knew I loved you, Grandy, for a long time, but now it just cements it that you chose your baseball fandom based on Saved by the Bell being preempted. You that was a that was a breaking point for you. That was huge, you know. And it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't on WGN at that time. Right. It was, you know, so that was just kind of one of those things. But uh, you know, I got no dislike for the Cubs. I just ended up choosing the Braves because of that. You began your career, as you said, with the Tigers and then come to New York in a trade with the Yankees. This is when the Yankees are coming off their 09 World Series championship. They're trying to continue the ball rolling. It had been a long time in Yankee land between 2000 and 09 to finally win a World Series. You're brought into the hope is to continue the good times, go to more World Series. When you came into the Bronx in 2010, did you feel immense pressure because you were part of a group of guys that had were looking to repeat, but you weren't part of the, the original championship. It's interesting because I was number 28 in Detroit. Then I get traded to the Yankees, and Joe Girardi was number 28. He called and said, hey, if you want number 28, you can have it. And I said, well, you know, is there a significance why you have it? He goes, well, we just won our 27th championship. That's the number I was. I'm switching to 28 in hopes of a 28th championship. I said, well, I can't take 28 because if we don't win, everyone's going to blame me. Right. I went ahead and took number 14, which was my high school number. It's also the number my dad wore when he played 16-inch uh, softball, which is very big and popular here in Chicago. So that's why I chose number 14. So from that side of it, there was a little bit of pressure, but I felt like I relieved it by taking 14, not number 28. Uh, but it was interesting. You know, anytime you get a chance to join a team that's won, especially the Yankees, you know, the thought and the hope is that we're going to do it again and again and again and again. 
Now, we made it to the playoffs three out of the four years I was there, but we ended up not making it to the World Series and we came up short. And I learned real quick after that first World Series, I'm sorry, the first playoffs where we got eliminated in 2010, I thought when I would come back to the stadium and see the media that there would be talk and like, oh, you know, this is a good season. Let's look forward to next year. There was no conversation about that. And I learned that it's all or nothing, you know, that we don't celebrate making it to the playoffs or making it to the championship series. If we don't win at all, then it's a, it's a failure, plain and simple. So I learned that and understood that, hey, we got to go ahead and try to get there as soon as possible. But the reality is there's only going to be two teams that make it. And as we've looked over just even the last 20 years, you know, it's very rare that you're going to get the same team there on a consistent basis and also win. We've seen the Giants do it. We've seen the Red Sox do it. And then outside of that, you know, it starts to get a little bit, you know, one here, one there, one here, one there. And who knows what the trend is going to look like moving forward. But, you know, I think those days of the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, where you have a powerhouse team that's just going to run a decade, you know, may not necessarily be in the cards on a consistent basis. I mean, you see it a little bit with Houston right now. And, and who knows if they'll continue to keep it going. But it's not going to be your traditional teams like you've had it in the past. And I think that's one thing that everyone has to understand and, and, and be receptive to, that it's tough to get there. And not everybody is just going to let you get there. And I know you want your team to go ahead and be successful and win, but it's always going to be challenging and difficult uh, when when that time does come. There are critics of the Yankees now that say they're not in it to win a championship every year, that they should be doing more. When you were there, did you sense that expectation, hey, you either win a championship or it's a failure? Did you sense that from the fans of the media or from the organization itself? I think it was across the board because, again, when I when – I, when we lost that first playoff in 2010, I'm coming off of the only experience I know is the Detroit Tigers. We'd gone to the World Series in 06. We had had a crazy 2009 finish where we played game 163 against the Twins, lost that game, and then ended up not in the playoffs. We would have played the Yankees again to start the 09 playoffs the year that they won it. But I remember at the end of those playoffs or at the end of those seasons or the end of those playoffs, there was always a big team meeting. There was always a conversation. There was, you know, top down, just everyone talking about, hey, let's get ready, think about this, remind you. And I feel like that was just understood with the Yankees. There wasn't a team meeting. We weren't gathering. We weren't talking necessarily consistently about it. But that was the expectation from day one. All those conversations that happened in spring training, all those conversations that happened on opening day, we didn't need to remind you of it again after you lost. You knew what the mission was. So whether it was the fans, the media, or the front office, it, it was top down. You know, Everybody knew exactly what the goal was. After your Yankees tenure, you're a free agent for the first time and you choose to sign with the Mets and your introductory press conference is very memorable for all Mets fans because you said, I've been told real New Yorkers root for the Mets. Obviously, that is going to get under the skin of Yankee fans, especially ones that just rooted for you the previous season. Did you expect to get some blowback from that? And and did you hear criticism from Yankee fans about that I heard criticism and everybody misquoted me you know by my and, and they were mad at a misquote so my actual quote was hey I heard from a lot of people here in New York that true New Yorkers are Mets fans so I'm excited to see that and people would come to me and said I don't like what you said you said real New Yorkers are Mets fans like nope didn't say that real fans are the Met, no, didn't say that either. So people were mad at something they thought they heard, but it wasn't exactly what I heard. And I was repeating what someone from New York had told me. So I was excited to see it. And what was crazy about it is 
yes, the Yankees are the most popular team in our sport around the world. I mean, you go everywhere and I you know, got a chance to promote the game as an ambassador for MLB for a long time. It was something I really enjoyed. And I traveled to Europe, to Asia, to uh, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa to promote this game and the Caribbean and, and, and Latin America. And no matter where you go, you might find people that say, you know, what? I don't know anything about baseball, but aren't the Yankees a team? So from that standpoint, it's definitely very popular. On the flip side, though, if you do see somebody, you know, I've ran into a lot of people in New York that have on a Yankees hat and they'll say, hey, you like my New York hat? I'm like, well, that's a Yankees hat. That's not <laughs> New York hat. Oh, OK, well, I'm in New York. I thought I was supposed to get this. But if you see somebody with a Mets hat on, there's no denying that they know exactly what the Mets are, what they've been about. You know, this isn't the, oh, I picked this up because I thought it was a New York hat. This is I picked it up because I'm a Mets fan and I want to wear it. So to some extent, you know, what that individual told me had some basis to it. Uh, but it was very interesting to see, you know, playing for the Yankees. Anytime we traveled on the road, it was absolutely amazing to see the number of people that would fill a road stadium for batting practice. It was nuts. But then you flip it. We come in 2015 and we get to the World Series. And I, I say this and this is, you know, not not a shot at one way or the other. In terms of the two stadiums, City Field and the new Yankee Stadium, City Field, when it was rocking, was louder, in my opinion. Now, we were in the World Series. I wasn't in the World Series with the Yankees. It could have been louder if we made it to the World Series, but you know, I hadn't heard anything like that in, in a while, and it was really exciting to see that at City Field, especially with that fan base that I'm sure a lot of people in the game weren't expecting us to be in the World Series in 2015, but there we were. Well, you're right about the Yankees hat. If you're a tourist and you come into New York City, you grab your taxi cab paperweight, you grab your Empire State Building statue, and you grab your Yankee hat. That's like the, an I love New York bag to carry it all in. And so that's the that's the tourist costume. But, you know, that 2015 team, the Mets fan base, I think for Yankee fans, they've been to the World Series often. They've won a bunch of championships in the last 25 years now. It's not as urgent. I, I was at some of those games during the playoff run. I was at game five at City Field in the World Series. For Mets fans, having gone since 86, there is such an urgency that you're right. The intensity is much different. And I guess you sense that between Mets fans and Yankees fans. Right away. I mean, I think you do get comfortable when you know you've been there consistently. And the Yankees were there, especially the late 90s, that early 2000s run. We're going to be there. We're going to win it. We do it. But again, like I mentioned before, you know, we, we haven't necessarily seen that in the last 20 years uh, on both sides. You know, we've got, you know, obviously the 2000 championship and the 2009 for the Yankees, no championships for the Mets. But then after that, like I said, we got Houston that's won a lot. We've got Boston that's won a lot. We got the Giants that have won a lot in the last 20 years. So, yeah, we can be reminded of the previous, you know, type of years of where we won a lot, but we also got to be also paying attention to what's actually happened right now. So when you do get there, you need to enjoy it, in my opinion. I mean, it may not happen nearly as much as you think it will. And I think the Mets fans definitely at that time in 15 saw it. And sure enough, since then, they haven't been back. Sure enough, since though nine, the Yankees haven't been back. So, you know, once they do get there, I hope both places are electric. I hope you can feel and sense it through the TV if you can't get a ticket to either stadium, Yankee Stadium or City Field. And, you know, I said this going into this year, it would be awesome to see it, especially after how much money was spent this offseason. It'd be great to see a Subway Series, you know, for the World Series. And I think that one, you would truly get some intensity. Because I remember Jeter talking about the Subway Series experience and he said, 
that was the most pressure one because we had to win that one. We couldn't lose in New York against the other New York team. So feeling that experience of him telling me that if it does happen again, and hopefully it happens sooner than later, I think it's going to be one of the most intense World Series that we've seen in a while. Game 5, 2015 World Series, ninth inning. Did you think it was the right move to bring Matt Harvey out? I didn't know what was going on. You know, I never really worried too much about what the pitching decisions are. Now that I've seen the highlights of it, and I saw him be told that he's going out, and then he's being told he's come back in, I don't pitch, but I've talked to a lot of pitchers about it. Once you're kind of told, you drop a level, right? Like, hey, you're going to come out of this game, or you're not playing today, and then they switch it on you. I got to get back up. And, and that can be challenging at that time. But that doesn't mean that Matt wasn't ready for it and Matt couldn't have continued to go on because circumstances do change. For example, let's just say we were going to take Matt Harvey out in that situation, but whoever we were going to go to the bullpen, the matchup didn't work out and we got to make a shift. Can you get me one more batter? Can you get me one more inning? Pitchers do that. That happens throughout the course of the game. But I think you got to give credit where credit's due. The Kansas City Royals did exactly what they needed to do, just got enough hits and enough runs and enough pressure to go ahead and continue to be victorious like they were able to do in game five of that World Series. We've seen now the injury to Jacob deGrom and this season, Tommy John will creep into next season. We'll see where he is after that middle of his, his thirties. Now another arm injury, but you saw him at or near his peak. What, how do you describe when deGrom was at his best and what you saw in terms of a career that might just be cut short due to injuries? Well, it's simple in terms of describing him. He was absolutely the best that I had seen played behind. I only got a chance to face him one time. And it wasn't in a, or I faced him once as an opponent. And then I faced him prior to that as a teammate. And that was the part that solidified me. It wasn't the opponent side of it because I had already had a little bit of uh, taste of it. But when I faced him as a teammate in spring training in Port St. Lucie, we're out in the backfields, and we got a simulated game. He's up there throwing. And I come up there, and I see the first pitch, and it's like a backdoor cutter, but it's not the traditional cutter that I'd seen. It kind of stayed up, and it, like, rode, and it was a perfect strike. Like, okay, even if I wanted to swing at that, couldn't do that. Then he threw a four scene. Then he threw something else. I was like, wow, that was a very quick at bat. <laughs> and the past, <laughs> it was three pitches, and all pitches were dotted exactly where he won. And I was like, and I didn't swing the bat, and I felt like I couldn't swing the bat. And to kind of confirm what I had said, I remember being on first base one time with the Mets against the Reds at City Field, and Joey Votto was talking to me. He goes, you know what's the coolest thing about playing for the Mets? And this is around that time, 2015, 2016. Because you don't have to face these guys. DeGrom is amazing. Syndergaard was amazing at that time. Steven Matz was doing his thing. Wheeler was doing it. But when he said it, one of the best hitters, in the game goes, you don't have to face them. That solidified it for me. So it's it's unfortunate that one of the best players in the game is not, not there because, you know, fans love watching that. Players love getting a chance to see it. You, you're always looking forward to, 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 to being around something special that might happen. So hopefully he's able to come back from this injury, get back, get back to the Jacob DeGrom that we've seen and that he knows that he's capable of doing. And I will say this, he's one of the most athletic individuals I've ever seen. He's definitely going to put the work in, and when he does come back, it will be at 100% of whatever Jacob DeGrom is able to give you at that time. He's not going to sell you short. 
been an up and down season for the Mets right now, just flirting with 500, below 500, a little above 500. What do you think is the biggest issue right now with the, this season's Mets? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think th- they've set a precedence and it started even back when I was playing there in 15, 16. Like, we got to hit the ball out of the ballpark. And I think the game itself has kind of shifted that way in general. So not only do we need to get somebody on, but when we do, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, can somebody get the ball out of the ballpark? And Pete Alonso has done, you know, exactly what everybody anticipates and expects he could do. But then from there, you know, we, we kind of fall off a little bit in terms of who or the players that are consistently going to be a threat to drive you out of the ballpark. And with strikeouts being so high in the game, I, I'm not sure where the Mets numbers are on that. The ability to get batters out is so consistent because the strikeout is so high. So when given that opportunity, if we can just get one hit and it's an explosive hit, it's a power hit, it's an extra base hit, it's possibly over the fence, that's game-changing in the in this side of it. Uh, so I think that might be slightly it on the offensive side of it. The good thing is I don't think there's any reason to panic because the division's still pretty jumbled up. And whether the record isn't exactly where you want it to be, the standings mean we still have a shot. We haven't been eliminated. We're not 10, 15, 20 games out of first place already so far earlier in the season. A series here, a series there, especially when you start to play in division, you, you're, you're right back in and right back on top. It still may not look the prettiest record-wise, but when you're on top of the division, that's all that matters. Let's talk about the Players' Alliance because it has always felt as though you've had a purpose larger than just playing baseball, and I feel like this weaves itself into it. It's an organization looking to help push those that might not have financial opportunities into baseball, expose others to baseball that might not be exposed to it. So your role with the Players Alliance and the larger goal of the organization, how does those how do those two things fit in? Well, it's amazing that the Players Alliance was able to be formed in 2020. And if we remember back at that time on the heels of the unfortunate event of George Floyd, the entire world got a chance to see that. And it also happened at a time when there wasn't any baseball being played because COVID was rampant at that time. So Edwin Jackson, one of our founding board members, D. Gordon and Cameron Maven, you know, came together, and said, we got to do more than just do something on social media. That's going to be just this viral moment. How do we go ahead and, and bring some of the things that this generation of players have been talking about, the previous generations and the veterans of the games, the the ones that have laid the groundwork for for black ball players in this game just to have opportunities. How do we come together both for the game and off the field in the cities that we play and call home both during the season and in the offseason? And that's what the Players Alliance, that's how it was started. And as we started to unfold and, and get viewpoints from active players, former players, players coming up the ranks on what challenges and changes we want to see have in this game that we can improve upon, the biggest thing we found on and you touched on it is If you want to play this game, this is America's pastime. It's been called that. And you can argue which sport is the most popular or not, but that's been a nickname that's been given to the game. Well, then all the people that want to play this game in America should have the ability to do so. And unfortunately, over the past few years, if not decades, the price to be in this game and play it at the later levels has made it very difficult for a lot of kids to play this game not just black and brown kids, but all kids to play this game. We see the biggest decline in players playing this game between the ages of 12 and 14. And it could be for a number of reasons. One, the field gets a little bit bigger. Other interests start to creep in. But I think one of the biggest things that not a lot of people talk about on a consistent basis is the cost to stay in the game at that point becomes really high. 
And if you think about it, you know, you're probably around the same age as I am. If I wanted to play at 13, 14, 15, I didn't want to be on the most competitive, but I just wanted to play. We always had a house league. We always had either senior little league or Babe Ruth or Legion ball. We sold a couple candy bars. We got our, our jersey. We got our hat and we were able to play. That's kind of been pushed out. And if you want to play as you get older, you're talking about four figures, five figures. You got to travel a lot. You got to pay for accommodations. You got to pay for your equipment. That's not in everybody's budget, especially with everything else that's going on. So we definitely want to make sure that it's accessible. If you want to play, you have the ability to play. So we've helped out with refurbishing fields, providing equipment, helping teams move from point A to point B. And it's not just baseball. We're actually going to be sponsoring our first softball team and bringing them to All-Star in Seattle this year, which is amazing. Uh, these are going to be some of the best black and brown softball players in the game that don't always get the exposure that are going to be playing on one of the biggest stages uh, possible, the Jenny Finch Classic at the All-Star in Seattle. So we're excited about that. And there's a lot of people that have gotten behind the mission. Um, Clayton Kershaw, Kyle Schwarber, Adam Adovino, just to name a few, David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez. So although we're pushing for these initiatives because it was founded and started by black players, Again, this is a baseball thing that we're really trying to push for. So for anyone that's listening, anyone that's watching and would love to support or has already supported, you know, definitely take a look at our website, playersalliance.org, and follow us on all the social platforms. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, I think we're on Facebook, and we just started um, a TikTok. I'm not on TikTok yet, so I think we're on there, but I'm not 100% sure. So, uh, But definitely take a look at what we got going on. It's been a lot of amazing things. and. Helping in the community, one of our biggest things that we did was our pull-up neighbor tour when we started in 2020, where we went to New York and we helped hand out COVID supplies and baseball equipment and food to food insecure people at the end of 2020 going into 2021 when just COVID was rampant. It was high and, and it was going through. And now fast forward, we have a couple other initiatives that we're looking to roll out. There's a, a event that we're going to be doing with the Yankees and helping keep dollars in the Bronx you know, that we can help for those kids that really want to truly play. And if any of your, your listeners have been to a game at Yankee Stadium, you know it's right in the middle there in the Bronx. And once you go left, right, you know, north or south, it's not Yankee Stadium all the time. And there's a lot of those kids that want to play and want to have an opportunity to. And with the help of the Yankees and CC Sabathia and the Players Alliance, we're going to be able to do some things in that community and hopefully a lot of others as well. You know, I was a white kid from the sticks and I grew up loving Daryl Strawberry. And before that, seeing the 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 lineage of black ball players from Willie Mays and my dad's time through Hank Aaron and idolizing those guys as well through old footage and film, through Dave Winfield and Ricky Henderson when we were kids, Ken Griffey Jr., on and on. And now there is a dearth of the great black baseball player, and it's great that the Players Alliance is trying to open up those doors. Is it disappointing to you because you and I are of the same age and of the same era that kids today that are black and brown don't have all of those stars that look like them that are playing in the game today? You know, if you look at anything, if you see something that looks like you, you know, you're, you're, you're a little bit drawn to it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all your favorite players are going to be black or if you're white, all your favorite players are going to be white because I can tell you right now, you know, I love David Justice. I love Dozzie Smith, but I also love Jay Buhner. That's the reason why I wiggled my hands a lot because I saw Jay Buhner doing that. Wow. I didn't know that. That's it. You know, I mean, so there's a lot of players that I love for a lot of that. But at the same time, when you do see something that does look like you, you sort of time to 
straddle towards it a little bit. And it does make it a little bit challenging when you see a player out there that doesn't necessarily resonate or look like you. So we're hoping to try to you know switch and see that happen because when you think about those generations you're talking about, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, that's when it was at its heightest. I think the black participation at that time was at about 15, almost 20 percent in Major League Baseball. And as of this opening day, we were down to about 6 percent or I think six to eight teams on opening day didn't have a black ball player. And you got to start going through and go, OK, well, what's going on? Why is this? Is there lack of interest? And we're not seeing that because there's millions of kids in the U.S. playing baseball up until age 12. Like I said, there's a big drop once we go from 12 to 13. And I think a big issue of it is the price, not only to want to play, but if I want to play at the next level, that's going to give me an opportunity to play professionally. One of those avenues is going to possibly be going to college. Well, once NCAA dropped the college scholarships from 15 down to 11.7 back in the 70s, we saw a direct correlation from when the African-American population started to drop in Major League Baseball as those scholarships dropped. You know, CC Sabathia, one of our vice board members said, hey, I got offered 90 percent scholarship out of Vallejo, California to go to the University of Hawaii to play baseball. And my parents couldn't afford it. So that's why I chose to play football, because it was 100 percent scholarship. And that's a issue for everyone, especially if you think about how much college costs right now. If you can't afford it, I got to look at another opportunity that's going to possibly get me into school that is going to be a little bit more affordable. And most of our athletes, especially some of the best ones in this game, Aaron Judge, Jacob DeGrom, Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, just to name the few, we all played multiple sports. We all had opportunities to go on and, and play at the next level. Jacob DeGrom had Division I basketball opportunities for him. So if he would have chosen to, he could have played basketball and not have had to pay anything to go to school. So there's some things that we're, we're trying to work around, communicate, keep the conversation going that can just hopefully make it more accessible, more attainable, especially if you want to play it. And there's a lot of kids, not just black kids, that do want to play the game, but unfortunately are just getting priced out. That's a really important point as well. It's not just a minority population issue. It's an everybody issue. I've got friends that have boys that play baseball that are 12, 13 years old, and they have to set aside huge chunks of time for travel. It's expensive, but they're also traveling to Baltimore for showcases mm -hmm. or out to D.C. or up to Syracuse or whatever. And these are just guys in the Northeast. You know, you could fly to Florida. You could fly to Texas. You could fly to Phoenix. Not a lot of families, white or black or brown, have those types of resources and time to invest in their child's sports like that. Yeah, you know, it's kind of to add to that, I have a family friend of mine that her kids are now playing in this space. And she said, we're thinking about buying an RV. I was like, really? Why? She goes, the cost of going to these tournaments, getting a hotel for the player, getting a hotel for myself and my husband is just not making sense. And we got to go because everyone's saying we have to go. So that's a challenge that they're deciding if they want to do it. They didn't want an RV, but financially, this might make more sense to go ahead and do that. So we can at least sleep in there and not have to pay in the hotels. We're actually doing something here in Chicago. I have a nonprofit that I run at the university I went to UIC. It's called the Chicago Baseball Educational Academy. And we're going to be kicking off the, the homestand classic neck, uh, the end of this month, where we're going to utilize a lot of the local area travel ball teams and give them an opportunity to play in arguably one of the best stadiums that they could play. I'm just a little, you know, add there because it's, it's, it's the stadium. Nice. I, I went to school here 
But I didn't realize that a lot of these travel tournaments where, you know, these kids are going, they're playing on high school fields. You know, if you win, you get to play on the good field. You lose, you're going 45 minutes away. You're not playing very, you know, in, in top places. So I was like, well, why do we have to go to all these places? We have a lot of travel ball teams in the Chicagoland area. So we're actually going to bring them here. There's no hotel required. You're going to be able to go home at the end of the night. The fee is comparable. We're going to have the scouts out there, both college and hopefully pro out there to see some of these kids. And they're going to get a chance to save all this additional money and do exactly what travel ball has been intended to do, get exposure, but not have to travel, not have to miss things, not have to spend all this ex exorbitant money and play on probably the best field that they're all going to get a chance to play on. And we're hoping to look to expand that, but this will be the first year that we're rolling that out there this year. New Yorkers, you should check out this website, playersalliance.org. They've got cool merch there as well. Get more information. They honor Jackie Robinson's legacy, obviously so, the pioneer of all of this. And it is such a good cause for all walks of life that I think it's easy to get behind no matter if you're a baseball fan or not because this is important. It's important to open up opportunities for everybody of all demographics. So this is really cool. Playersalliance.org. He's one of my favorite players of all time. It is my great pleasure to have him here on the show. Uh, you spent more than enough time with us, so I thank you for your grace and your patience with us. And, uh, and Curtis, keep doing what you're doing because you're a wonderful ambassador for the game and everything else. And as a Mets fan myself, man, thank you for all the memories. This has been really great to talk to you. Uh, thanks thanks for having me. And for all the New York fans out there, thank you for all the love and support for the time there. It's amazing that I spent eight years there. You know, my second home. Yeah. Um, if I could have done it back, I should have bought some property there. So... <laughs> I was at Renton in, in New York, but I enjoyed it. So thank you for all the love and support, and thank you for having me on. A little postscript on our conversation with Granderson. I went to City Field in 2015 for a media availability, and you know I just kind of wanted to see what made that clubhouse tick. And as a Mets fan, I, I was naturally interested to see why everything kind of came together so well that summer. But also, I wanted to write a story for CBS Sports about just what it was that that kind of brought that whole clubhouse together in such a tight-knit way in such a surprising run. And what I found was just a bunch of guys that seemed to treat each other well and the people around them well. You know, when I went into the clubhouse, it was evident that they just had brought in a bunch of good guys and the young guys there seem to be good guys as well and they treated a clubhouse staff and media relations and the equipment guys they just seemed to treat everybody well and, and I actually went up to Curtis Granderson at the time and I just kind of poked around what he was thinking about with the team and what made it work and why he was having so much fun etc but I, I remember at the end of the conversation just being like you know thanks you're a great ambassador for this team and there's been a lot of dysfunction around the team for a long time and I think most of us Mets fans got exhausted of always worrying what the next bad thing that was going to happen was who was going to fight who how they were going to treat the manager poorly what ownership wasn't going to do to go to the extra mile what tone deaf statement they put out it, it just it became so exhausting and Granderson was so refreshing because he was such he was such an honorable figure to have wear the jersey and play leadoff, hit leadoff, and play so well for him. So uh, it carried over for this conversation. You could just tell the type of guy that he was. And it got me thinking, out of New York players, New York athletes, 
who are the guys, who are the athletes that you would trust in a position of leadership within the community? You know, for Curtis Granderson, he's doing great stuff with the Players Alliance, trying to make sure families that can't afford to continue with their child in baseball can do so. And that's obviously a very respectable uh, act and cause. And I feel like Curtis Granderson would would make a good mayor, that he would make a good representative. He would make a good cr- congressman because he just he's level-headed, he's thoughtful, he's smart, and he seems to want the best for a lot of people and avoids controversy because he knows what he's doing. So I, I just think he would he would make a great politician in, in the best sense, somebody that I would trust. Some other guys that I was thinking about that came to mind, I think about the 80s Giants and two guys that played on defense for bad Giants teams and then the good ones in the 80s and won a championship in the Super Bowl in 86, Harry Carson and George Martin. George Martin, after he retired, went in to do some really noble causes in raising money for those less fortunate and you know families that had suffered over the years, especially here in New York. And I feel like he always had a heart of gold and was a very bright and and smart leader. And Harry Carson as well, kind of the same thing. Every time that you hear him speak about the league, about modern situations, about um, problems that might pop up around CTE, the NFL, health, and the players, he, he always just sounds so smart at what he is saying. So those were two guys that I thought from the Giants standpoint. I, I think that from you know a baseball standpoint, a guy that we had on the show – New York accent a couple of weeks ago, Bernie Williams definitely comes to mind. I feel like I could trust Bernie with some tough decisions and to be a guy that really thinks about what the community needs and be able to bring multiple sides together. You know, our conversation a couple of weeks ago with Bernie was just, it was so warm. He was uh, so easy to talk to and no ego. And that's another thing that a lot of these guys lack is, the natural ego that comes out of playing in professional sports and being pulled at and prodded and paid a lot of money and everybody wants a piece of you. These guys don't seem to have that, and that's that's so refreshing as well. So those were a couple of the guys that I that I really thought could fit the bill of a real, you know, a real community leader that you would trust in a big spot. From a Jet standpoint, how about Tony Richardson? He He's a guy that didn't get a lot of run back in the day because he was a fullback, and he was there for all of the halfbacks, running backs, to, to do what they did. But Tony Richardson always struck me as such, again, a really bright, smart guy that had bigger had bigger causes in life than to just play football. He was a natural-born leader. He was a guy that the media went to for quotes. He was a guy that every locker room he played in, you know, really respected. He was a guy that had, you know, just a really good head on his shoulders and came from a good family. And you could just tell he was, again, a guy that you could trust. And, um, you know, you, you really appreciated him wearing your jersey and representing your team. So... Uh, Those are some of the guys. If you've got any guys that you think pop to mind, men or women, female athletes as well, welcome here, that you would put in a position of leadership in the community and or in business or whatever and feel like you're going to get the best out of them and they're going to do what's right by everybody. I'd love to hear some suggestions. You can email us at 
The email address, nyaccentpod at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. And uh, love to get some of those suggestions, and I'll read those coming up in a future episode of New York Accent. One more note here before we wrap up, and that is this interesting little piece of of information. Uh, This popped on Monday afternoon, but the last Wayne Gretzky-worn NHL jersey, his Rangers jersey from April 18th, 1999, ends up selling at auction for $715,000, okay? The reason that is, is notable is It is the highest price ever paid at auction for an American-based hockey jersey. The previous record was $650,000 for Mike Ruzioni's Miracle and Ice jersey from 1980, Team USA, of course. This eclipsed that by, what, about $65,000. The other record holders are all Canadian record-holding jerseys. It was Gretzky's last Edmonton Oilers jersey, which went for 1.4 mil, and then Paul Henderson's Canadian national team jersey from the 72 Summit Series against the Soviets went for 1.275 mil. But the highest pay, the highest priced at auction NHL jersey that was an American team or Team USA now happens to be Gretzky's last Rangers jersey that sold this week for $715,000. And if you're like, you know what? I think I've seen that jersey in person. You probably have. It was on display at MSG in their Defining Moments Museum from 2016 to 2019. But this is the auction that it was for the first time offered publicly. So you might have walked by it at the garden at one of those displays, those glass displays around the garden. And now uh, it went up for auction and sold for $715,000, a record price. All right, that'll do it for us for this episode of New York Accent. A very special thanks to Curtis Granderson. That was a real thrill. I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for a while, and he certainly delivered. And thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman for putting everything together as always. You can usually catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things. That's available on the free Odyssey app, the free CBS Sports app, or on Sirius XM Channel 158. You can also tell your smart speaker to play CBS Sports Radio. And you can usually catch me Saturday afternoons as well on WFAN. This podcast is available on WFAN's YouTube channel, as all New York Accent episodes are. All right, until next week, have a great rest of your week. And New York Accent is an original Odyssey series.